Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the second hour of our program. Very happy to have Sam Robinson from Utah Gun Exchange joining me. Sam, good to catch up with you once again. Likewise, Brian. Thank you. I know that you are one of the hardest working people at uh, helping uh, helping us be aware of what is going on on Capitol Hill while the legislature's in session. I understand there's a meeting coming up this afternoon, and there are actually four pieces of legislation that uh, Utahns need to be aware of when it comes to uh, firearms. Yes, absolutely. Well, I want to thank everyone who does whatever part they do to do their personal best to help preserve liberty, whether it's in Utah at a local or a national level. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, but, yes, in committee today at 4 p.m., there are going to be four very important uh, pieces of legislation that relate to our Second Amendment. Uh, it is very important that we pack those committee rooms with as many people as we possibly can to show our support for the Second Amendment and to stop any bad gun laws from passing through those committees. It is important, if we can, to head these laws off of the pass so they die in committee and never have an opportunity to get voted uh, on in the, in the House or the Senate. And that's what we're trying to organize today. We have a rapid response team. Uh, it's called the Utah Gun Exchange People's Voice Rapid Response Team. If people like to join that, we would love to have them. If they want to come out on their own, we would uh, request that they do so as well. Uh, again, these are going to be held uh, or, or heard today at 4 p.m. in two separate committee meetings. So it's important that we bring as many people as possible because we're going to have to split that support. But we've got uh, red flag laws. We've got the criminalization of private transfers as we know them. Um, we have got uh, universal background checks, as they are called, but of course they are not universal because criminals do not go through them. And we cannot let this happen. So we ask for all people who can Please come out and please allow for proper time uh, to be able to park your vehicle and get into the Capitol. It's a madhouse up there. But uh, we appreciate anyone who does their best to come out and help uh, defend our Constitution, both locally and anywhere else. We could really use your support today. This would be a major push if we can stop these in committee, Brian. What, tell me about the uh, dangerous weapon custodian liability bill and the safe storage of firearms amendments. What, what do those hold in, in store for us? Yeah, I, I've been advised by my attorney not to speak on that. At the current time, because of various reasons that, that could violate election law, uh, I'm told that I can't speak on a specific legislation at the, at the current time, only okay. conceptually, as well as uh, endorse or um, say anything less than positive about any other political candidate as well. But gotcha. it is important for people to know that at, at a very high level, Conceptually, we've got red flag laws on, uh, that are being heard. We've got the criminalization of private transfers and universal background checks that are part of the, the bills that are being heard today. All of those are extremely detrimental to our entire Bill of Rights, not just the Second Amendment. So we hope that people can come out today in support of this. If people want more information, they can go to utahgunexchange.com. You could email us at info, I-N-F-O, at utahgunexchange.com, and we'll pass along uh, very specific information about why certain things are are not uh, good for us, and we'll help you get mobilized to work with other people in your community who are doing the same. Is there anything that you would recommend those who who can show up to these committee meetings this afternoon uh, bring with them 
in other than uh, you know their voice what what would you have absolutely. them bring yeah absolutely so we had a fantastic uh, uh event last thursday uh, that I had organized. It's called Gun Save Lives Utah event. Everyone was dressed in blue shirts that said Guns Save Lives. Uh, and we had signs that said the same and these stickers uh, that had a red heart on them with the same message, Guns Save Lives. By the way, it was fantastic to see how many members of the House and Senate and Capitol staff wanted to wear those. Uh, <laughs> we had a lot of support up there, and it looked amazing. We're asking people that were at that event to bring those things back. We're trying to create a very positive image as it relates to supporters of the Second Amendment. Uh, please bring any very positive and uplifting signs that talk about the defense of our families, the defense of our communities, and why that's important to the Second Amendment. I would personally ask that people leave any signs or symbols uh, that are typically seen as divisive symbols uh, at home. A lot of the time, those are the things that get focused on, and people in support of the Second Amendment uh, can be marginalized and disregarded as a result. Uh, not only are we trying to influence our representatives and senators here, but we're trying to create good optics so that when we are covered by the news, however much or little that may be, we want the imagery that is coming out to be very positive, very upbeat, very professional, and not threatening, because we want to reach the people in the middle of the political spectrum uh, they're considering becoming gun owners. We want them to see that we are nice, calm, rational, friendly, loving people that stand in the defense of their liberty as well. We even stand in the defense of liberty for people who oppose us, whether they know it or not. But again, please leave signs and, and symbols that are divisive at home. Uh, please bring anything that is inclusive and talks about the protection of all people. Okay, and again, just for, for those who are, are wondering the place and the time, give us the, the time and the location of where this meeting will, uh, these meetings will be taking place. Okay, they're going to be in two locations. Um, they're going to be in room 450 at the Utah State Capitol in the main Capitol building, fourth floor over in the southeast corner. Um, get off the, the elevator on the fourth floor. Um, then the other uh, room is, is in a separate building, which is actually located northwest of the Capitol. You have to get out of the Capitol building, walk diagonally northwest into the, uh, the Capitol um, hearing building, and it will be in room 20. Utah Gun Exchange will be set up in the main Capitol Rotunda. You'll see us there with Gun Save Lives shirts and signs, uh, or Utah Gun Exchange shirts uh, uh, that are black and, and some blue. And we're going to be directing people. What we're trying to do is aggregate all the people so we can best determine how to apply the attendance uh, or the, the people that are in attendance so we can, we can put the pressure where we need it, when we need it. Fair enough. Well, Sam, thanks for all the hard work that you're doing. Uh, I know it. Likewise. You know, it, it, things are never safe when the legislature is in session, but uh, this is no. a place where your voice can be heard. And thank you to the Utah Gun Exchange and individuals like you who are, are helping to organize these efforts so that people's voices can be magnified. Absolutely. We, uh, in fact, Brian, that's a really good point. We have something called the, uh, the People's Voice Project coming up very soon where we want to help amplify the voice of the people towards these very important issues and and with uh with any luck i'll be able to come back on and, and speak with you about that uh, if somebody wants to join our you target exchange rapid response team people's voice rapid response team come see us today and we'll help you get set up there as well thank you for all the good work you do as well brian greatly hey, appreciate it thank you much sam you're welcome here anytime just give me a shout and uh, my pulpit is your pulpit <laughs> likewise thank you Take all care. right that's sam robinson from the utah gun exchange 
you know, I don't want to sound cynical here, but I'm, I, I do breathe easier when the legislature's out of session. I don't know why. My pocketbook, my freedoms feel safer. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one who feels that way. I think, I think about the old quip from, I think it was Will Rogers, you know, what's the difference between death and taxes? Well, death doesn't get any worse whenever, you know, the legislature meets. Something to think about. All right. Welcome to the show. We have a lot to cover today. And some of this is some of this is pretty foundational. I have at least one topic. I'll probably save this for the final segment that I guarantee is going to it's going to it's going to get some people's hackles up. And I think maybe it should. But like I say, I'll save that to save that for the last part. In the meantime. Oh, in the meantime, here's here's the best laugh that I've had so far today. Uh, This was. This is a meme that popped up earlier, uh, a picture of Rod Serling, if you remember, from the original Twilight Zone. And it says, imagine, if you will, an atheist stuck at a green light behind a car with a honk. If you love Jesus bumper sticker. I don't know why that one struck me as so funny, but it was good enough. I wanted to share it. And now I have. And hopefully it brings a chuckle to your life. So when we uh, when we come back from the break here in about a mi- in about four minutes or so, we're going to talk a little bit about the regulatory state. Now, most of us have grown up with the regulatory state all around us where it's it is to us what water is to a fish. You ask a fish, hey, what do you think of the water? What's water? <laughs> it's it's so ubiquitous. It's everywhere. That's how many of us are when it comes to all the different regulations that we live under. Well, Kevin Erdman has a remarkable piece called the unbuildable American home. This is in National Review. And, you know, if you built a home recently or if you're in the building industry, you probably have a pretty fair understanding of the kind of regulations and red tape that you are expected to work through any time. But for those of us who haven't recently built a home, it's it's a mystery. And frankly, it's a little bit shocking when you see how difficult it is not only to build a home, but to build the kind of home that you want under the various layers of regulation, be they federal, state, or even municipal. And what's really interesting is it wasn't always this way. This, you know, those who say, well, this is what makes our lives better. This is what makes society safe and uniform. Yeah, not so much. It also has the, the effect of pricing people right out of building the home that they would like to build. All right, that's just the other side of these messages. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be right back. Hello there, and welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. I want to share this article with you from Kevin Erdman. This was in National Review, The Unbuildable American Home. Now, even if you haven't been, you know, in the market to build a home recently, you should really pay attention here because this is this is talking about stuff that potentially affects all of us. And it's it's not going to get better as we go. The idea here is how regulations and land use restrictions have made it too expensive to build. Kevin Erdman says the United States has developed a split housing market. There are places where home prices have stayed low. And he says you look at it from the perspective of uh, a young family. 
And it's in the expensive cities. It probably seems as if homes have been spectacular investments for their parents. But now housing is overpriced. It makes for a poor investment in the cheaper cities. He says it may appear as though parents homes haven't been such spectacular investments. So for those young families, he says the American dream seems to be a one time asset bubble. Now it's done. All they have are poor choices. And it's tempting to try to address these incongruities with a targeted patchwork of solutions. Rent control so families aren't priced out of their neighborhoods. Down payment assistance to help new buyers in expensive markets. Government watchdogs to make sure that buyers aren't overextended. But Kevin Erdman says the problem is much of the stress and instability that we see in housing markets today is a result of a tangled web of existing barriers, taxes, and subsidies. This family gets a big income tax write-off, and that family doesn't. This family in one city rents a home for $4,000 per month, and that family in another pays $800 per month for a similar home. This family cannot meet the standards for mortgage approval and pays $1,200 in rent on a home owned by that family whose mortgage costs only $700 per month. Now, he says all of these inequities are the result of thinking of public policy in terms of favoring or protecting a certain group or a certain behavior. One policy is meant to favor renters, another to encourage home ownership, another to prevent a new bubble from developing. Broadly beneficial housing policy doesn't need to favor or protect anyone. It also needn't be concerned with what the right price is or whether even housing is affordable. Broadly beneficial housing policy needs to be focused on favoring just one thing, free and open markets. And this is true at both the local level and the national level. Kevin Erdman says what Americans need is the ability to purchase shelter. Well, today, home purchases are bundled with tax subsidies. The government estimates that homeowners saved more than $200 billion in 2018 because of untaxed rental value. The tax deductions for mortgage interest and property taxes and capital gains on owner-occupied homes. There ain't no such thing as a free lunch, as Milton Friedman was fond of saying. A home with tax subsidies is worth more than a home without them, so its price will be higher. They're also bundled with the power to decide what homes your neighbors can or cannot build. A major reason the expensive cities are expensive is that whenever new homes are proposed, current residents are able to mount an endless barrage of complaints. Well, the new units are too tall or too expensive or they cast shadows or they don't match the existing character of the neighborhood or they'll attract the wrong sorts of new residents, etc. So if you want a house in those cities, you have to pay dearly for it. But that high value might collapse if you and your neighbors start letting developers increase the local supply of housing. Now, he says in both of these cases, you may prefer a house that lacks those high-priced endowments, but if enough of your neighbors prefer them, the price of your home will reflect it. Kevin Erdman says it's tempting to excuse the expensive cities by blaming high prices on geographical limitations to building. And it's true that building can be more expensive in dense cities with more local amenities. That can explain the difference between a high-rise condo in downtown Atlanta and a modest apartment in the nearby suburbs. But the difference between a house in L.A. today and a similar house in Atlanta is explained by politics. This is clear if you consider the reaction of local regulators in L.A. to new developments. If geography were the limiting factor, when a developer proposed a new 100-unit project, the planning commission would be ecstatic, and it would enter into quick negotiations to see whether the developer could squeeze in 200 units. Instead, Developers today typically must engage in years of negotiations just to get permission to build 50 units loaded with mandates and fees. So what is in short supply is simply shelter. 
Instead of tweaking the bundle of subsidies, taxes, and gatekeepers, Kevin Erdman says we should get rid of the bundle. Make the market for shelter simple again. The perception that homes aren't affordable stems from letting the market for homes slip out of the realm of free and open. At the local level, housing markets are restricted by zoning laws and other regulations that prevent new units from being built. It's in the cities with the least new housing that prices have shot up the most drastically. The New York, Boston, San Francisco, and Los Angeles metropolitan areas are outliers with regard to both low supply and high prices. They don't even allow enough building to accommodate natural growth, let alone transplants. He says, I call these closed access cities. Year after year, thousands of their residents, usually people with lower incomes, must pack up and move away. Now, Kevin Erdman says in Phoenix, he's met many families who've been forced out of the California metropolitan areas. There were no options for them in Los Angeles to mull over and no units within their price range in the Bay Area. So their only option was to leave. And he says those differences in costs affect our expectations. The cities with $4,000 a month apartments exist in a society that has the ability to rent similar apartments for $800 a month elsewhere. People in expensive cities note that their or notice rather that their fa- friends and family who live in less expensive cities rent better, larger homes. Shouldering a $4,000 payment each month forces some renters and homeowners to lower their expectations about what they can afford. He says the vast gap between housing prices in different cities creates a sense of unfairness. The owners of modest homes in, say, the Bay Area that now rent for four grand a month or that sell for a million dollars didn't earn that wealth by creating something. Their profits are a direct result of policymakers preventing developers from building new housing units. In short, he says we suffer from a lack of choices, though we know more choices should be available. That's what creates so much frustration. In a free and responsive market, the market price is the affordable price. This is obvious in markets that have changed over time. Take television sets. In 1950, they were much more expensive than they are today. Was there a television affordability crisis? No. The cost reflected the incomes, culture, and technology of the day. Both consumers and producers were free to buy or sell televisions that were appropriate for them. So families didn't buy 70-inch TVs. They bought 12-inch black and white TVs and saved the rest of their income for goods and services that proved more valuable in that time and place. Housing is different from televisions. Every family will always need exactly one roof over their heads. For families in dire circumstances, a home is a basic right we should be able to help provide. But he says most families who are providing for their own shelter have a remarkable range of available options. The average home size in the U.S. has more than doubled since World War II, even though family sizes have declined dramatically. And he says there's a huge difference between the size and cost of a Manhattan condo and that of a farmhouse a few hours upstate. We make countless substitutions tailored to suit our lifestyles and budgets, new versus rundown, large versus small, quiet neighborhood versus bustling. With so many choices... He says it doesn't make any more sense to ask whether housing is affordable than it does to ask why people, some people buy large TVs and some prefer streaming Netflix on their iPad. Better questions are why isn't there enough of the affordable housing we need? And why isn't affordable housing where we need it to be? He says the cost of a TV should be approximately equal to the cost of the similar TV next to it on the store shelf. And the cost of any home should be about the cost of building a similar home down the street. 
Now, some of these homes will be 600-square-foot studio apartments in the heart of a bustling metropolis. Some will be 5,000-square-foot villas overlooking the ocean. And some will be 80-year-old, out-of-date, rural, two-bedroom units. Whatever condition homes are in, the key to making them affordable is to protect the right to build a new home down the street. That includes both the right to build it and the right to finance it. Now, I don't know if this is striking any nerves for you, but I thought this was some pretty decent food for thought. We're going to come back to Kevin Erdman's article in just a few moments. If you have some thoughts you would like to add, feel free, 801-331-8113. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back just the other side of news. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. Brian Hyde at your service. I'm sharing an article from National Review. This is from Kevin Erdman, The Unbuildable American Home. And I think he's making a fairly solid case here that, you know, with the the wide variety of housing costs, one of the biggest problems we have is that uh, the, the costs are driven up artificially by making it virtually impossible for a person to affordably build a new home. This doesn't mean that everything has to be exactly the same. That It just means that free and open markets would take care of that need for shelter. But you have so many different subsidies and so many different zoning regulations and so many different fingers in the cookie jar. It makes it very difficult for the free market to operate. As he puts it, he says, whatever condition homes are in, the key to making homes affordable is to protect the right to build a new home down the street. That includes both the right to build it and the right to finance it. Now, look, I know a lot of people who consider themselves diehard conservatives. Yes, I vote Republican. I salute the flag every time it comes by. I stand for the Pledge of Allegiance and the Star-Spangled Banner. And yet they are rabidly collectivist when it comes to controlling what their neighbors do. And look, the driving dynamic is this. Well, I'm just trying to protect my property values. My home is going to be my, you know, my store of value for retirement. That's a really bad idea. Not to mention, it blurs that line about what private property is all about. If your neighbor's property is not your property, then really you should probably shut up and not be trying to tell them what they can and cannot do with it. Well, but what if it affects my property? Okay, fair enough. Are you selling your property right this instant? Well, no. Then be quiet. You're worrying about something that hasn't even come to pass. And even then, if you can't show some form of provable objective harm that has happened to you or your property, you still have no right to be trying to dictate what someone can do with their property. Like I say, this is something that's lost on a lot of people, including those who consider themselves hardcore, dyed-in-the-wool conservatives in everything but that little part of their lives. But that's that's a pretty big but. Kevin Erdman says, building homes that are too nice doesn't make housing unaffordable. He says, here it's helpful to think back to to the TV example again. As TVs get cheaper, we don't just spend less and less money on 12-inch black and white ones. Some families might spend more on TVs in relative terms than they would have in 1950. If they conclude that the new 70-inch ultra-high-definition TV, which might cost more, is still a better value. 
It looks better, gets more channels, plays music. He says if TV makers decide to market 70-inch color units, the sticker price alone doesn't make them less affordable. On the other hand, if the government allowed TV makers to only sell a limited number of TV, of TVs rather, then he says they might decide to sell only the 70-inch sets. In that case, TVs would be less affordable because of the lack of choices, not because the TVs happen to be expensive to make. Would limiting the number of TVs while insisting they all have to be 12-inch black and whites make them more affordable? No. If the supply were limited enough, the families with the most money to spend would bid up the price. There would be a queue for $1,000 12-inch TVs, just like there are waiting lists today for glorified closets in San Francisco. And he says this is why, ironically, blocking new housing because the units will be luxury units makes the housing problem worse. The blocking is the problem, not the condition of the units. He also says homes will not be made affordable by the financial securities that fund them or by the taxes and subsidies that apply to them. Once again, consider those 12-inch TVs. If there were only a million TVs available and family of means had the price bid up to $1,000 each, would they become more affordable if we created a new subsidy that offered a $200 grant and low-interest financing to first-time television buyers? See, those subsidies might change who can buy a TV, but there would still only be a million of them, and they would probably cost more than 1000 Public programs that make home buying more accessible can create public benefits, but we should judge them on whether they increase choices, not on how they affect prices, either up or down. That's pretty smart. Kevin Erdman says if the price of existing homes increases to a level that's higher than the cost to build a similar unit down the street, then more new units will be built. If the price of existing homes decreases below that, few new units will be built. But he says the irony today is that housing affordability is increasingly a concern, yet we're building new units at historically low rates. That's because policy interventions have made the prices of existing homes lower than the price of the potential new home down the street. At the local level, the closed-access cities are the epitome of the problem. By harassing and taxing developers and builders, policymakers in these urban areas help elevate the prices of new homes above those of existing homes. Now, the financial crisis didn't change the closed-access cities as much as you might think. Building has recovered and returned to a pace similar to what it was before the crisis. But it's still an exceedingly slow pace. And to varying degrees, he says much of the rest of the country has the same problem. Few new homes being built because they cost more than existing homes. But for the opposite reason, the national crackdown on mortgage lending has prevented millions of Americans from buying entry-level homes. And this lack of new buyers has driven prices lower. So in most U.S. cities today, mortgage payments compare more favorably with rents than they have for decades. But many potential buyers cannot qualify for mortgages under current regulations. Where the crackdown on mortgage lending is most binding, the shifts in the market are extreme. Among homeowners with the highest credit scores, that means over 760, mortgage originations did not really decline during and after the financial crisis. But today, in inflation-adjusted adjusted dollars, this group is borrowing more than in 2005. Lending to applicants who have FICO scores between 720 and 760, which is above average, is down 35%. Lending to those with FICO scores below 720 is down more than 50%. And contrary to popular belief, lending to people with low FICO scores was not elevated before the financial crisis. Kevin Erdman says in the major metropolitan areas where the median household income is around $50,000 or less, 
which have been affected the most by tighter lending regulations. Homes are being built at less than half the rate they were before the financial crisis. From 2002 to 2005, an average of 522,000 new homes were sold across the country each year for less than $200,000. In 2018, only 72,000 in that price range were sold, and the number is still shrinking. A country desperate for affordable homes is hardly building any. On the other hand, new mortgage lending regulations don't affect corporate access to funding. Apartment buildings are being built at a higher rate than they were before the financial crisis. But they would need to be built at roughly double today's pace to make up for the collapse in the construction of low-priced single-family units. So he says the best solution to the entire problem is greater access, which means freer and more open markets in both mortgage funding and urban land use. The financial return on owning a house should come mainly from its rental value, not from excessive capital gains. That should be enough to make owning a home worthwhile. And if it isn't enough, well, more people will choose to rent, rents will rise, and so will the rental value of homes and the financial return on home ownership. He says today families are not necessarily choosing to be renters. Many are renters, even though it would be worthwhile to them to own their own home if they could. Rents are rising just about everywhere today because we have eliminated choice. Solve the problem of access and affordability will follow. Choices are the key to the goal of affordability and fairness. And he says we need to make more of those choices legal again. Again, this is Kevin Erdmas, Kevin Erdman, rather, who is a visiting fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. I don't know if you are in the market either to build or if you're, you know, just looking for a rental or whatever, but... You know, I, I hear about friends who have opportunities to move to various places and and almost without uh, without exception, if they're moving to a large metropolitan area. One of the first complaints they have is, man, everything is so expensive. I see that in my neck of the woods, too. On the one hand, it's great because there's a lot of growth. There's a lot of people coming to this area. That means, you know, competition supply, you know, is, is in short supply because there's a lot of competition. People looking for places to rent. People looking for homes to purchase, that tends to drive the price up. But I agree with Mr. Erdman that getting government out of the way in as many ways as possible, and I mean stopping the subsidies as well as, you know, the the red tape that prevents building, let the market find that happy medium. But at some level, that means that we're going to have to find the courage to let our neighbor's business be our neighbor's business and not have that insane desire to control another person's property. Especially for the say, well, I'm just protecting my own property values. If this is a test as to how committed we are to freedom, I'm sorry to say a lot of good people are flunking that test and, and they're flunking it hard. I don't know where it begins, you know, as far as, you know, dialing it back and, and starting to respect private property rights. I suspect for most people, the, the most important lesson they ever receive on this is when they're the one on the receiving end of somebody else's manipulation or telling them you can or can't do this with your property. See, not everybody's this unreasonable pig farmer wanting to put a pig farm right out there in the middle of the neighborhood. It's usually something much more mundane. But if it hasn't happened to you, well, it's easy to uh, not have so much sympathy. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. We'll be back just the other side of these messages.
Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. All right, I have been saving, uh, I guess this is some, some red meat here. You're going to think I'm the church lady when I bring this up, and that's not my intent, because I, I don't want to get up here and, and start talking about, oh, this is, you know, this is pearl-clutching, Bible-thumping time here. But I have to ask, when, when did this become the new normal? This is a clip from a, a Pete Buttigieg rally. I believe this was in Denver. Saw this on Twitter. The caption says, powerful moment. Nine-year-old Zachary Rowe of Lone Tree asks Pete Buttigieg how he can be brave and tell people he is gay, too. Give a listen. Zachary, age nine. And this is a really touching question. He says, thank you for being so brave. Would you help me tell the world I'm gay, too? I want to be brave like you. Well, I don't think you need a lot of advice from me on bravery. You seem pretty strong. To see you, it took me a long time to figure out how to tell even my best friend that I was gay, let alone to go out there and tell the world. And to see you willing to come to terms with who you are in a room full of a thousand people, thousands of people you've never met, that's, that's really something. So let me, tell you, let me tell you a couple things that might be useful. The, the first thing is that it won't always be easy, but that's okay, because you know who you are. And that's really important, because when you know who you are, uh, you have a center of gravity that can hold you together when all kinds of chaos is happening around you. That's the first thing I want you to know. The second thing I want you to know is that you'll never know who's taking their lead from you, who's watching you and deciding that they can be a little braver because you have been brave. When when I was trying to figure out who I was, I was afraid that who I was might mean that I could never make a difference. And what wound up happening instead is that it's a huge part of the difference I get to make. I never could have seen that coming. And you'll never know whose life you might be affecting right now, just by standing here, right now. There's a lot of power in that. And the last thing I want you to know is, even if I can't promise it'll always be easy, I can promise you that I'm going to be rooting for you. Wow. Wow. What an amazing coincidence and opportunity all rolled into one that this, uh, did I mention he's nine years old? This nine-year-old kid would be able to ask a presidential candidate to help him be brave and tell people he's gay too. Now, again, I, you know, I know it sounds like I'm, I'm on the soapbox here. I'm clutching my pearls and I'm just I'm doing my best church lady impression. But seriously. Are we OK with using kids as political props? Are we OK with the continued sexualization of kids in this manner? I'm just I, I'm a little bit stunned. Not terribly surprised from the standpoint of, you know, it's, you know, look how everybody cheers on command. Oh, you've got to cheer 
I'm sure someone in the audience, you're not clapping hard enough. Clap harder. Cheer louder. Wave that rainbow flag. Did I mention this kid is nine freaking years old? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that this kid's parents uh, may have something in common with Greta Thunberg's parents in that, uh, yeah, you know, it's we, we've built a social media following and we want our kid to be the poster child for this cause or that cause. And, of course, it gave Pete Buttigieg a chance to, you know, to stand up and pontificate about, well, you know, here's here are some platitudes about being yourself and being brave and whatnot. And I, 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 I want to temper what I'm about to say with uh, with the understanding. I'm really not trying to hurt anybody's feelings, but I believe this to be the absolute truth. It is not brave in this day and age for a person to come out as gay. It's not. Or if it is brave, it's roughly as equivalent as coming out bravely standing up against the practice of slavery in America. Why? Because the battle's already been won. There's never been a safer time for a person to stand up and proclaim themselves to be whatever it is, gay or trans or whatever. The real danger is for anybody who stands up and says, no, I'm, I'm not down with that. You don't even have to be rabidly against it. You don't have to be, you know, the Fred Phelps, Westboro Baptist Church kind of uh, against it. All you have to say is, no, that's not for me. That's a brave thing to do. Because the crowd has been trained like, like some kind of, uh, dare I call it, hate-seeking missile to go after you and hound you and ruin your life. So I don't I don't care what somebody does in, in their own private life. And, and I'm going to have to throw this qualifier out there. Most of the people I know who happen to be homosexual are very private people. They keep it to themselves. And it's not because, well, they know their place. It's because they have respect for other people. And they don't want to live their life like some big unending political statement. They also don't make that one facet of their being their central identity. It may be a part of, uh, of who they are or how they choose to live their life, but it's not, you know, the be all end all of this is who I am. But a nine year old kid paraded around on a national stage, given the oohs and ahs and applause. I don't know. There's so- something just seems terribly off to me. This is right up there with, you know, the the little drag queen kid Desmond or drag queen story hour. It seems like it's an attempt to remove as much innocence from children as possible at as early an age as possible. And I have a serious problem with that. 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to the show. Oh, being brave, Brian, would be saying that nonsense in Russia or Iran. Yeah. Yeah, where they have official policies against that kind of stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I know uh, there's one gay guy in, in our ward here, our church congregation. He's gay, but he does not practice. And he is grateful to say he has a temple recommend, and he resists the temptation to have sex with other men. And that's how he chooses to live his life. And I actually, incidentally, I have a family member on my wife's side who's also got those issues. But he's married with two children, and she knew what she was getting when she married him. They're out there. 
See, I think, Jared, I think you would agree with me. Neither one of us sees it as our job to go make anybody else's life more difficult or more painful, whatever they may be working through. It's not our duty to to add to their pain or, you know, to, to the difficulty level of their life. But at the same time, I think we I think at some point, you know, it's good to keep an open mind, but you have to commit to the truth at some point. Well, politics is just bogus. This is mental grooming. Uh, how, how long before we have a Republican gay president candidate? Since president is the only office that matters in the land, everyone's rooting for the next king. Isn't it's that the truth? Soap, yeah, big soap opera show. Who who doesn't love a little, you know, <laughs> who doesn't love a little gayness in their soap opera? Well, I, I think it's becoming mandatory. And see, for for me, that's that's the rub is... It's not a matter of, oh, well, you know, how, how unusual, you know, here's a kid who, you know, is trying to sort something out. It's almost like it's becoming a mandated thing. It's like an enforced priestcraft. You will applaud on command when this boy comes out and waves the rainbow flag. What if I don't want to? Oh, then you're, then you're oh, to yes. be destroyed. Oh, yes. And uh, the people that would not do the salute in Nazi Germany were beat up by the big buff homosexuals. They were called brown shirts. True enough. Great stuff, isn't it? Yay! America! <laughs> All I can say is to, to be a person who is, is living according to a sense of uh, right and wrong is not getting easier. No. No, and most people are content to just, well, I live it personally. First it'll be personally in my house, then it'll be personally in my heart. People are such cowards, by and large. Millions of cowards. That's how they keep us in line. I mean, that's no joke. That's when, when the police fear us as much as we fear them, we'll start getting our freedom back. But the sheep don't mind getting sheared. Wow. Very true. Jared, thanks so much for the call. We're down to the last minute or so here. Look, I my, my goal here is not to, to make sure that you're out there and, and you're feeling frustrated at, uh, at gay people. I'm just questioning, why can't we see this wholesale shift culturally as well as politically, that is is being foisted on us. And Pete Buttigieg isn't isn't the uh, you know alpha and omega of this movement. He's just like the the latest person carrying the torch, so to speak. But when you start bringing kids into the situation, that just doesn't pass the sniff test for me. And I have to wonder at what point is somebody going to stand up and say, "Hey, enough, enough," because my deepest fear is that uh, enough people will say, "No." We'll just go with it. Welcome to the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 